Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey everybody, I'm Wes Moore and you are listening to Future City, a monthly feature where we ask, what's next for Baltimore? On this show, as of 2014, just 65.9% of students who graduated from high school went on to enroll in college. That was down from 66.2% in the previous year and the lowest percentage in a decade. Now, of those 65.9% who go on to college, 33.4% will actually earn a bachelor's degree by the time they are 25. That means that about a third of American adults have a four-year college degree, only a third. Trends are suggesting that fewer and fewer people will be opting for a four-year college degree in the future. The average student who takes out student loans ends up with nearly $30,000 to pay back, and that number only continues to get higher as school tuition rates continue to rise. And many students just aren't seeing a return on their investment. About 44% of graduates end up at a job that does not require a college degree. So, what is the future of higher education? Some say it's vocational and trade schools, programs that offer more technical training in specialized fields, many which traditionally haven't required a bachelor's degree. But is our education system set up for students in vocational schools to succeed? What about the students who don't go to college? What sort of economic outlooks will they be looking at? We'll be speaking with the superintendent of a vocational school district, as well as the associate director of career and workforce education in the Maryland Higher Education Commission. But first, we'll be speaking with Doug Belkin, who is a higher education reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Earlier this year, he wrote a fascinating article entitled, Why an Honor Student Wants to Skip College and Go to Trade School. Doug now joins us over the phone. Doug, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, so I want to first start with the big picture. Uh, you know, what sort of trends have you been seeing in higher education? And are more people going to college now or less? So there's two answers to that question. The percentage of people leaving high school going to college is climbing. Uh, it was uh, 40% a couple generations ago. It's about 70% now. So that's consistently been rising. Um, but the numbers of people who are graduating high schools are declining. So we've got a demographic dip on the one hand, uh, but a larger percentage of the people who are going through are graduating. And then the majority or near the majority of people who are in college are not traditional age kids anymore. They're, they're over the age of 24. So a lot of adults are back in school too. And so with the trends that we're seeing for the adults that are, that are, that are back in school, these are students who basically are just leaving high school, taking some time off, or completing their GEDs, and then returning back to college at, at, at a later point. Yeah, a lot of them are uh, hitting a wall in their jobs or their careers and figuring they need to get reskilled, and so they go back to school. And so considering that trend, uh, you know, what tends to be the, the long-term economic prediction uh, you know, for those with college degrees, and, and how are people looking at that as a motivation for them returning to school, especially the ones who are taking some time off beforehand? Leave school, go to go to college, uh, get a degree. Your lifetime earnings are significantly higher than if you don't do that. The trick is that a lot of people graduate college, enter, or sorry, graduate high school, enter college, go for a while, ac- accumulate debt, and don't finish. And that's a, that's a big chunk of people. So for every hundred people who start 
uh, in university, um, 59 will graduate in six years, which means 41 don't. Hmm. And those folks generally have, uh, you know, debt accumulated and no no credential to leverage to pay it off. Uh, so there's around 40 million Americans who don't who are in that in that boat, and they're they're kind of stuck. And that's a lot of folks. Um, so a lot of them later on will, will you know try to go back to uh, get some sort of credential or degree uh, uh, to help themselves. And just to just to make sure that the the listeners heard you. You said 59% will graduate in six years. You didn't say four years. Yeah, the four years. So the way they, uh, the statistics are kept by the federal government is four-year graduation rate and six-year graduation rate. And the four-year graduation rate is so bad, it's about 25% that the sort of uh, what people generally use is six years. And, and you know, a 25% graduation rate is just really, really low. So, uh, and it takes more people a lot longer to get through now. And what that also means is two more years of tuition that the student is not going to be responsible for. Tuition and, uh, you know, that's time you working, or if you're working, maybe you're working part-time, so, it's, so there's an opportunity cost on top of that. Right. And so, so considering that, I want to I talk a little bit about the article that you wrote back in March, uh, again, entitled, Why an Honor Student Wants to Skip College and Go to, to Trade School. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about Rachel Nicholson? Yeah, so she we, we found her because she's she's sort of a, a a smart kid who has a lot of options in front of her. She's a, a an A student in Western Pennsylvania. Um, she's in a public school. She uh, could get into a good college, but she's concerned, and her parents are concerned that she would take on a lot of debt, learn things she's not um, sure she can uh, monetize, and uh, and it wouldn't pay off. And she's worried about that. She's worried about about getting in over her head and not having the, uh, the an appropriate credential. And she also really happens to love working with her hands and, and working with cars. She spent a summer when she was uh, about 14 uh, fixing an old beater with her cousin, who's a mechanic, and just fell in love with it. So she's a bright kid, and she's decided that she wants to go to diesel mechanic school. And um, the the pushback from the adults around her was significant. And so that was sort of the, the, the tension around this issue of what's the right choice for her was the focus of the story. So what was the, what was the pushback from the adults? So starting in 1983, the policy in the United States has been to um, aim as many kids in the United States as possible toward a four-year college. That's been the, the, the stated federal policy. Um, and the high schools have responded by creating programs that will do that. Uh, so we have very few shop programs compared to a couple generations ago. Uh, people spend time in college prep, which is great if you go to college, get through college, and graduate college. But because there's such a drop-off now, and frankly a decline in the value of a college degree from what uh, it used to be, because so many people have them, there's a lot more risk associated with going to school. So she's afraid of that risk, but uh, her guidance counselors, uh, her dentist mentioned this, said, you know, cars is fine, it's a good hobby, but go to school, you're smart enough, you'll get through, you'll maximize your potential. Uh, and, and their point is well taken, and if she, if she does go to school and get through, then that's a good bet that, that could pay off. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, because it, it, it makes me think uh, how this conversation would have been different had her name been... Ron Nicholson. So, for example, you know, had she not been a, a, a woman who was thinking about going into a trade, uh, had she not been a woman who was thinking about becoming a mechanic, would the conversation have been different? And so how much do you think sex plays into this conversation around training and vocational uh, and, and what are the right destinies and the right roles for the students as they're trying to make the decisions? So gender is a tremendous uh, factor in, in going to school. 
way more women than men go into college and way more women graduate. Um, 75% of high school valedictorians are girls right now. Girls are outpacing boys in almost every measure of academic achievement in the country. Right. So, uh, but there are still strong you know, uh, gender roles in terms of vocational uh, pathways. So I think she's, uh, she's bumping up against that to be sure. But um, the, the pathway for her to get through school, to get into school and through school is probably more well trod than if her name was Ron. Um, uh, boys are going more, uh, fewer, few of them are entering college, and more of them are going into either into the workforce or toward vocational work uh, that, in the same way she's considering. Was she thinking about it at all? Uh, you know, one of the things you, I know you talked about in the, in, the, in the article was the idea of the stigma, right? Um, how much of that, how real is that stigma? For students who comes up and says, well, you know, I'm not interested in college. I'm not interested in, in going on to a two-year school or four-year school or whatever the case might be. I, I am more interested in becoming a mechanic. I'm more interested in, in, uh, in, in going into woodwork. I'm more interested in, uh, in, in becoming a beautician or whatever the case is. Uh, how, how real is that stigma? And have we noticed any trends in either an increase or a decrease in the stigma? So this stigma is real. Um, it's it's strongest among in affluent communities, um, and uh, Tony Carnavale, who's one of the sort of smartest guys in the room when it comes to higher education, points out in this story that um, you may track more people toward vocational schools, but it will hit a point where, uh, sorry, in high school, you may track more kids into vocations, but it will almost certainly hit uh, a wall. Um, because there's just going to be people who, because of this stigma uh, and their belief that a four-year school is the best path, won't get over it. Um, and then you probably bump into racial politics, because if you start tracking black and brown kids into vocational degrees, you're going to hit the third rail of, of United States politics, which is race. So uh, it, it, this thing touches different nerves in different communities. Uh, it's, it's about class. It's about race. It's about gender. Everything gets tied into to education here. And you know what's interesting too is it it uh it does tie into class and race and gender, um you know but one of the other things that you see is how it also spans nationalities, uh you know I'm thinking about places like Germany, um you know other places that also have different trade models. Uh, are there things that you also see from outside of our shores that are interesting, worth taking note of, or potentially worth uh worth uh, worth imitating? So this is beginning to happen. The, the, this college for all model that the U.S. adopted, uh, you know, a generation ago, is beginning to fray around the edges, and, and folks are taking a much closer look at the apprenticeship model that's been very successful in Germany and some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, and, and and adopting some of this stuff. So you're seeing apprenticeships um, slowly being growing. President Obama and President Trump have both championed the idea of apprenticeships for more people. Um, I think this will probably grow. Uh, it just seems to make sense if you can get paid uh, to learn and work at the same time, then you can skip this this tremendous risk that college has become in the United States. And and uh, big companies around around the U.S. are adopting these models from from uh, northern European countries. You know, it's interesting because I, I think about my time in, in the army, and you know, oftentimes if there's a young person who's thinking about the military, you know, one thing I'll tell them is think about what you want to do after the military. And my recommendation would to you would be do it in the army, right? So if you if you're thinking I maybe I want to be a chef when I'm done, then go be a cook in the army. If I'm thinking if I want to be a a mechanic or an engineer, then go be a mechanic or an engineer in the army. The idea of they will pay you to train you, uh, and then you then not only have a, some salary but you also have a skill set that you're bringing to bear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
so that's beginning to pop up even in white collar jobs like insurance industries and and uh, technical industries uh, uh, using computers and such because the demand is there and the labor supply isn't there. So uh, corporations are in a sense becoming the U.S. Army and creating their own GI bills to help move kids uh, through school while while they're getting trained. So let me ask you this, and I'll and I'll make it personal. Let's say I'm a, 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 a your child or your nephew. Uh, I'm an honor student, and I'm, I come to you and I say, uh, listen, Uncle Doug, I'm, I'm thinking about going on and I'd like to become a mechanic. Um, but I was also accepted to a top university in America. What advice do you give me? It's a tricky question. If you have the capacity and the interest to become an engineer uh, uh, and work with your hands, that's an, an, interest, an interesting uh, pathway. You can do very well as a mechanic in the United States, and you will be able to do well as a mechanic for a long time because the the, uh, the supply and the demand just aren't matching up. Um, so I think you have to think about what your future is going to be, where it takes you. Um, and if you're a mechanic, it doesn't mean that you won't go back to college at some point. You may, be, you may work on cars and then decide to get uh, a degree. They call them stackable credentials so that you, you get more education by the time you're 30 than if you had just gone you know, directly to a four-year college when you were 18 and finished at 21. So doors don't shut by going into the workforce, um, but you do have to you know, keep in mind to keep them open. And so when we think about the things that are pushing more people into this, uh, you, you mentioned a really important point earlier, and that's just the basic cost of college. How much is costing? for students to be able to go, to attend, and that it's not even just about the, uh, the, the, the opportunity cost of what's left. It's also about the fact that we're watching tuition increasing by upwards of 7% on average uh, around the country every single year. Uh, what do you think it's going to, what do you think it's going to take in order to help to, to break that curve? And, and, and how much of a factor do you think this also plays into this, this bigger push now that people are having about the need to reform and think differently about vocational training? market is beginning to weigh in on universities. So we're starting to see some of the weaker colleges uh, close or consolidate. And, and th- th- there's no reason to believe this trend won't, won't speed up. Uh, a lot of schools are in tough financial shape. So I think, uh, you know, just the fact that people are voting with their feet and not enrolling in schools that they don't believe are good values um, is, is applying pressure. Schools are reacting to that by trying to innovate. They do it very slowly, but they're trying to bring more courses on that are more aligned with the labor market. Um, they, over the past couple generations, have been fairly removed from that. Um, so that's one thing that's happening. But then there's this whole other set of programs that are being created, a lot of them coming from Silicon Valley and the um, West Coast, that are faster, cheaper paths to the workforce. They offer credentials in things like voting, vote, uh, coding boot camps are the most famous examples, but that model is spreading now. And we're starting to see this uh, in data analytics and data science. Um, uh, a lot of um, healthcare programs are moving in this direction. So you, do, you may not get as wide and broad a range of education that you would in a four-year degree, but you'll learn some very pointed things that will help you get a, a well-paying job uh, in maybe half the time or maybe a quarter of the time that it would take you in a, in a four-year program. And you're even seeing more partnerships, things like the P-TECH programs, where it's a mixture of high school, community college, and an employer. Uh, where the employer is actually assisting with the curriculum. So they know that when a student graduates from this combined program with, the, with their high school degree, with their associate's degree, but they also then have a skill set that the employer finds useful. 
um, because that's another concern, as you mentioned, where employers are saying we're getting more students that are graduating, but don't necessarily have the prerequisite skills in order to contribute uh, very quickly as they as they walk off their college campus. That's a big model, and it's happening at universities. Um, we wrote a story three years ago about University of Maryland, and they had taken uh, that uh, there's just not enough folks who are trained in cybersecurity, and Northrop Grumman needs folks trained in that way. So they helped to build a curriculum for University of Maryland. I think they built a dorm. Uh, the, the program was oversubscribed by a lot of really, really smart kids, and they had a really good job waiting at the other end. Uh, so this, is, this has been seeping into the academy for a long time, and a lot of it's about money. Schools are getting less money from the state, so they're looking for outside sources of revenue like corporations to uh, help stand them up. When we're talking about looking at whether or not the United States is prepared for the future, one common KPI, one common key performance indicator that we will look at is college graduation, the amount of college graduates that we had. President Obama even spoke about it often, where he once again wants the United States to lead in college graduates. Is that the wrong KPI? I think it's a really superficial um, number, and I'll tell you why. Colleges purport to teach people to think critically. That's in most of their mission statements. It's a really important thing that they do. So it's not just a bunch of information that you have, but how do you use it? How do you synthesize things and innovate and come up with, with answers to questions that uh, are new, that you can you know learn the answers to from a book? That's what college, at its core, uh, uh, purports to do and what it should do. It uh, doesn't do a great job doing that in, in many cases. There's something called the uh, Collegiate Learning Assessment Test, which uh, essentially tries to measure this. And it's a tricky thing to measure, but they do a good job. Um, and, and what it shows was that um, uh, uh, something like one in three kids make very little progress in their critical thinking skills over four years of schools. And uh, almost half of kids graduate college with, with essentially weak critical thinking skills. So you may have a college degree, but if you're not able to apply information to solve new problems, what have you done? Uh, and the answer is not enough. And so I think two things have to happen. Um, schools have to uh, be a little bit more transparent in what they're doing uh, so that people can see how much you're learning. That's something that's really not talked about in America. We talk about the uh, the name on a degree, but not actually what it represents. Um, and, and I think that degrees also probably need to get a little bit more aligned with the labor market so the kids are learning things that they can apply more directly after school uh, so that they're not floundering uh, for as long and as often as they do. We've been speaking with Doug Belkin, who is an education reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Doug, this was fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It was fun. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. And today, we're talking about the changing reality of higher education and the emergence of vocational and trade schools as a viable alternative to a four-year degree. Coming up, we'll be looking at the reality of vocational schooling here in the U.S., hearing from someone who understands it inside out, Sheila Harity, who is the superintendent of the Montachusett Regional Vocational School District and former tech school principal. She oversees vocational programs ranging from automated technology to vet tech to dental assistance to the culinary arts. All that coming up after the break. Hey, welcome back to Future City. I am Wes Moore, and today on the show, we've been discussing the future of education. 
And to tell us more about vocational education, trade education, is Sheila Harity, who is a superintendent of the Montachusett Regional Vocational School District, uh, or Monty Tech. In full transparency, I had the absolute pleasure of visiting Monty Tech uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, I have known and admired Sheila for a very long time, and I could not be more excited that she is now joining us over the phone. Sheila, it is great to talk to you. Oh, it's great to be with you on the phone. Uh, I wish I certainly was down there with you in studio, but uh, certainly there in spirit. Sometime soon. Sometime soon. Yes, (laughs) that'd be nice. Well, I want to start just by giving the listeners an understanding of the school district that you oversee. Is it is it like a traditional school district with multiple schools? What is the setup? It's actually the second largest regional vocational school in Massachusetts. We represent uh, two gateway cities, Fitchburg and Gardner and 16 towns all the way to the New Hampshire border. And um, we're the regional vocational school. So students that would like a voc tech education, they apply to come to our school. And um, as I mentioned, we have 1,425 students. And when you mention vocational school, you know, I, just to be, uh, just so people understand, when you talk about specifically about vocational school, what does that mean, and what qualifies a school to spe- to be specifically listed as a vocational school? So Massachusetts has what we call Chapter seventy four frameworks, and in these frameworks, we have twenty one vocational programs, vocational technical programs that our students can choose from. So when uh, the way our structure is set up is one week, half of our school is in academics and the other half are in their technical program for the entire day, five days a week. And then the offset week, they flip. Those that were in academics go into the vocational program and the vocational students go to their academics. So when students are graduating from Monty Tech or another vocational school in Massachusetts, they literally have to pass the same requirements as a student in a comprehensive high school and pass their core courses and pass the state MCAS, our MCAS exam. But in addition to that, they have industry-recognized credentials that they earn, uh, as well as uh, college articulated credit. So there are certain places who will argue, well, our kids can graduate with college credits. Our kids will, will uh, you know, can get a, can, are doing early college or doing classes at the community college. Uh, what do you think then becomes special about the students that are graduating from Monty Tech when it comes to confidence, credentialing, that makes them so different than the student who says, well, I'm getting college credits as well before I move on to higher education? So in high school, students that attend Monty Tech actually have uh, 21 different choices to actually have a high school experience where they uh, explore a potential college major as well as a career. And a lot of times, unfortunately, um, you don't, we don't have those opportunities just because of time in a comprehensive setting. So when a student comes to Monty Tech, they're able to explore all 21 in a mini-explore. We wouldn't expect our 14- or 15-year-old freshmen to know exactly what they'd like to do um, as they grow up. Um, so we expose them to all 21, and then students actually uh, select the nine different exploratory programs that they would like to explore further. So one week they'll be in academics, and the next week as freshmen they'll be in, say, their ninth choice. Following week academics, the next week their explore will be in their second choice and so forth. But they'll go through nine um, 
uh, first semester of their freshman year, actually exploring all um, their specifics. And then by January of their freshman year, they're placed and they are select. They select which um, program they would like to um, study further for three and a half years at Monty Tech. But see, but so that- it's a real comprehensive uh, curriculum. And uh, in addition to the industry-recognized credentials, they also go out on field trips. They have career speakers. They do job shadowing. And as second-semester juniors and seniors, they have the opportunity to, instead of come to, coming to Monty Tech during their vocational week, they can go out and work in their particular business or industry, work full-time during their vocational week, and get paid. So you're really creating those authentic learning experiences for the students. You're building their resume, their skill set, and upon graduation, now you're giving the student and their families options. And I think that it's a really important point and distinction that you just drew. This is not about you telling the students college isn't worth it. This isn't about you telling the students, no, don't, don't go to college. What you actually need is a skill. This is about you just basically offering a series of alternatives that if college is one option, then that's fine. And if it's not, then that's fine too. But you still will send uh, students off to college every single year as well. We do. Uh, 58% of our students go to college. But many of our students, because college is so expensive, they're working part-time and either going to school full-time or part-time. And they're, again, fall back on their vocational technical training for the part-time work. Uh, many of our students also stay in our state uh, college, uh, community colleges and university system. So that works out so well with those workforce pipelines that we've helped establish. They can continue to work as they are pursuing their college degree and at the same time um, addressing our workforce needs in our region. What first got you involved in vocational, uh, vocational and technical schools? So, believe it or not, um, I, I helped in Worcester Public Schools. I helped open a high school dropout program. At the time, we had over 15% of our high school students were dropping out, which was, uh, um, you know, devastating. So, we were able to start a brand new program called the Comprehensive Skills Center. And I was their math teacher, their phys ed teacher, and their career exploration teacher. And from there, I was helping our students as they're graduating with college applications. Then I helped run our city summer program, and eventually we ended up all the way um, placing 2,100 students in summer employment. From there, um, I had uh, central office um, work as well, being the school-to-career coordinator for all the high schools, doing all those activities that are necessary to help students transition to college or the workforce in uh, the city of Worcester. And then I was asked to be the uh, principal of Worcester Technical High School in 2006. And I was the um, vocational uh, principal there for nine years, really working uh, directly with all the the staff and the students, and we really uh, transformed that school. Well, I can say to, to, to say you transform the school and then eventually move up to the district is, is an understatement. I, uh, you know, not to call you out, but you, if you walk into uh, Dr. Herity's office and you see pictures with her, with Arnie Duncan and, and, uh, and, and President Barack Obama, uh, you know, your work and, and, uh, and your impact has been noticed at the very highest levels of this country. That's kind, Wes. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm blushing. <laughs> you can't see me, but I am. <laughs> 
But it's true. But I, and and I and I think it's important because I, I think about your career path and your career trajectory. You know, specifically in you know dealing with vocational schools and and I, I wonder from that path where you've had a chance to see it as a as a principal, as a superintendent. You know, sitting on the sitting on on a governor's commission. Um, what have to you have been some of the biggest learnings and the biggest takeaway? from this journey of seeing vocational schools and uh, uh, from uh, from seeing it as a teacher and principal to now seeing it as a as a superintendent? So my biggest takeaway, you know, you referred to Worcester Tech and the, and the work that was being done there. And I, I look at, so for the listeners, Worcester Tech actually was um, the lowest performing high school in our city of Worcester, Massachusetts and one of the uh, poorest performing vocational schools in Massachusetts. And in seven short years, uh, we became the highest performing high school in our city in a national model where we uh, received the um, United States Department of Ed Blue Ribbon um, School Award for transformation. And what was wonderful about that is it's a city school that's as diverse as any other um, high school in our in our city and across our our country, and as we struggle with, um, you know, the achievement gap, the skills gap, and so forth, I think Worcester Tech and Monty Tech are the poster child of how we can address um, this achievement gap. Students learn so well um, through authentic learning experiences. Way too often, as we're educating our students, um, we're expecting them to learn something, memorize, and in a lot of cases. You know, students are wondering why they have to study this. They regurgitate it, and then they forget it uh, after the exam. But I think in a vocational technical model, we answer that question why. I, I see day in and day out the light bulb go off uh, in our students' head, and their eyes light up, light up, and I just see them become active learners. They mature right in front of our eyes, and as they're earning these industry-recognized credentials and college credits, they're earning them. We're not putting a star in their forehead. They're actually understanding these concepts and skills and really feeling very uh, confident when they graduate from high school. And they're able to really define uh, where they'd like to go in the future. So I think going through the process as a principal and then a superintendent, it, I feel like I've doubled down on the commitment of vocational technical education. And I think that um, it is such a successful model it needs to be replicated and expanded a, a, across our country. Does it also need to expand in terms of, not just in terms of geography, but in terms of age? Um, I, I think about places, you know, like Germany, where kids will start as, as young as middle school pursuing a vocation. Uh, mm. w- when should we be starting this process with students? When should we be having these conversations? When should we be having these, uh, getting an understanding of the type of pathways that students could and should enter into? Wes, that's a great question. I believe in middle school, our students should start the exploratory program. And even in the younger ages, especially when in elementary school, um, you know, parents and guardians want to get involved, uh, they can come in as career speakers and the field trips and so forth. So students can start getting exposed to uh, different industries and career potentials. But certainly start the middle school, at the middle school level, the process of looking at various areas. Because what I've uh, discovered in my uh, two decades in vocational education is you can't expect a 14 or 15-year-old student to come in 
and have an idea of what they want. And if they do, it's usually because their mother, their father, their uncle, a family member, or a significant person in their life has exposed them to the career. So if you're fortunate enough to have that level of mentorship and uh, family dynamic, it's great. But if you don't, then, you know, it's, it's almost like you have blinders on. You're not sure, and you're using media as your source of information potentially for career exploration and maybe not think about it at all. And I know some people, the, the fear that some people have is the fear of tracking, right? Where we'll say, well, you know, poor kids and students of color and first generation kids. And, you know, these are the kids that we want to push towards vocational schools versus we tell other kids that, no, college is for you. Uh, what, what's your response to that when people will make an argument that essentially what we're doing is tracking? So um, in vocational technical education, it's for all students, not just for some. And I'm really proud to share that Massachusetts, I really feel, has a national model because at this point, almost every one of our 28 regional vocational schools have a waiting list because families understand the value and experience of of what a vocational technical school can offer. And uh, now students are, are coming in droves and applying. It breaks my heart. I wish we could serve uh, literally every student that wants to come to Monty Tech or any of our regional vocational technical school. And that's why it's so important at our state level that we're trying to expand access by building more programs, um, by actually starting to offer career and tech ed programs in the comprehensive high schools and so forth. Because in Massachusetts, that stigma has been eliminated probably in the last decade. But unfortunately, what you're referring to is very much alive and well um, in other states across our our country. But in Massachusetts, certainly, if your listeners wanted to to look up the success rate, we're leading Massachusetts with our state exams, our scores. We're leading the state with our graduation rate and um, our lowest uh, dropout rate as well. And and just just so uh, the the listeners understand, we're talking about a ninety seven percent graduation rate. Right in four years. So in what, four years. In four years, which which uh, mm. which I, I I I can tell is not uh, I, not just the envy of many schools in Massachusetts, is the envy of many schools around the country. Correct, and that's why it is so important that um, you know you also hear an important ingredient to this uh, conversation as well is uh, business partners. We could never be successful without our business partners in the higher ed institutions helping us keep our finger on the pulse of what's expected of our graduates. And we're led by 400 businesses in North Central Massachusetts and our higher ed community college and university. And we meet several times a year with them. We ask them to review our curriculum. They look at our equipment and technologies that we're using, and we develop a five-year equipment um, list that will be needed to meet the industry needs. And if there's new programs that need to be started, we just, for instance, just started a veterinary science program. We had surveyed the um, middle school students. There was a significant interest by our students in the study animal science. We looked at workforce development and the vet assistant and vet tech and a veterinary doctor occupation is in high need, not only in our region, but also in Central Mass and Massachusetts. And um, the workforce pipeline was um, screaming for additional trained students. So we actually 
started a veterinary science program this year for our freshmen that will every year roll out an additional class and within four years will be fully occupied. And in addition, we raised $2.6 million in private sector uh, donations. We uh, approached foundations and we wrote grants. And our own construction students and staff built the 7,500-square-foot veterinary clinic right here on our Monitech campus. And we'll be opening the campus uh, to families that can't afford proper animal care. And our own students and our veterinary doctor will be running the clinic. You talk about real authentic learning. There it is. Well, you know, and I, I, I tell you, I saw it firsthand. I mean, I saw that, you know, you had students involved in every single aspect of, of the campus from, you know, as you were having buildings going up. I mean, having students learning about, you know, what does it mean to put together the electrical and the and and the uh, and the and and the and the uh, the drywall and and how do you think about landscaping? I mean, so the fact that you made this real for a lot of students uh, in every aspect of the way your campus is run was remarkable. But I, I did have one more question for you. When you think about, when you think about uh, the work that's being done in vocational schools now, and you think five, ten years from now, are there certain areas of focus that you think will eventually be phased out that you're doing within your schools? And are there certain areas of focus that are not areas of focus now that you think will significantly get ramped up? That's a great question. You know, I continually attend uh, conferences that they're actually studying um, that exact um, point that you're making. What industries uh, will be non-existent and how can we prepare our students for occupations that have yet to been discovered? You know, when you think about what has happened to our society, uh, just with the incorporation of technology is incredible. So it's a matter of us as educators, again, keeping our finger on the pulse and working with business in higher ed to ensure that we stay current, because way too often uh, school systems can become very antiquated, and for us, we need to stay current. So we have looked at um, various programs, like I had mentioned, the veterinary science adding it, certainly would entertain uh, a biotechnology, some form of bioscience. In fact, uh, I'll announce it today, we just received a half a million dollar um, grant for mechatronics because the workforce needs in our region is enormous in that area, and we're combining our engineering and electrical and our computer-aided design programs into um, some of the national certifications and mechatronics that are important and needed in our region. Sheila Harity, you are remarkable. Sheila is the uh, superintendent <laughs> of Monty Tech, or the Montachusett Regional Vocational School District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm honored to, to be on your radio show today and talk about such an important educational cause. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Today, it's all about the future of education and the role of vocational schooling in preparing students for the workplace. Next, we'll be looking at higher education here in Maryland. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back. I am Wes Moore and you are listening to Future City. Today on the show, we've been discussing education and technical schools. Here to help us learn more about the future of higher education in Maryland is Alan Gallegos, who is the Associate Director of Career and Workforce Education for the Maryland Higher Education Commission, or MHEC. So Alan, first, what exactly is the Maryland Higher Education Commission? 
Sure. The Maryland Higher Education Commission uh, consists of uh, governor-appointed members of the commission that um, direct the agency in terms of its relationship with students, the business community, and the constituency at large. In addition to the commission itself, there are, is a uh, secretary of higher education as well as a staff to support the directions that the commissioners decide to take. Uh, the higher education commission includes departments such as academic affairs, whose job it is to uh, monitor the programs that are offered in the state, as well as the Office of Student Financial uh, assistance, which will help pass money that is allocated for scholarships and grants from the legislature and the budget process to actual students. So I've had a chance to attend a both a two-year school uh, and, and a four-year school, a, a, a two-year uh, college where I got my associate's degree and also a four-year college where it was a, it was a research institution. Uh, when you think about where the career and workforce education institutions are in the focus areas that they are in right now, what are some of the things that you think that some of our research institutions could learn from them? Sure. I think one of the things that we, uh, these, uh, these smaller schools and these career workforce education programs really do a good job of is tracking and reporting their out their student outcome data and and that can be one of the real difference makers across the board in higher education to really help students make educated decisions about what school they want to attend and what program within that school they may want to attend every private career school in maryland is required to uh, report out exactly how many students enrolled exactly how many students completed and exactly how many students are employed in their field within six months of uh, obtaining their credential. That is something that the uh, higher education system, in, uh, in, by and large, can track that data. But in, un- unfortunately, due to federal regulations, it is actually very difficult for that data to be available to the public in disaggregated program-level information that can be really useful in the student decision-making process. So that's the biggest thing that I would say that the traditional colleges and universities can do is really get behind a um, student-level data reporting system that would enable individuals to make program and college decisions based on the outcomes that that the students are achieving in their programs at those schools. And what do you think are some of the biggest things that you could learn from them? The, I would say biggest, and one of the things that does not really occur at the uh, career vocational training system is some of the real emphasis on the human development side of things, the personality development, um, creating a, uh, a well-rounded citizen who is willing to participate and, and able to participate in a democracy, not just in terms of uh, contributing work output and paying their taxes, but also in terms of um, social uh, engaging in social justice. Um, um, the exposure that one has at a, at a traditional brick-and-mortar residential college or university to differing thoughts and opinions and philosophies and worldviews 
can really shape an individual and help their own personal growth outside of their particular career interests. And by doing so, and what the baccalaureate and above degree institutions, our traditional brick-and-mortar schools do a really good job of, is really helping to mold individuals and really set them on a course of personal and and um, personal development throughout their lifetime. Also, one thing that the traditional liberal arts education enables an individual to do is really transfer between different career paths. For example, I started off as a music education major, but here I am uh, through a very circuitous path of working in uh, the state government and higher education. That that's quite the that's quite the career transition that you made. That's right. Yes, I um, I started off. Um, playing cello in a practice room for four to six hours a day. And by the time I left college, I was spending four to six hours in the recording studio a day. And then um, three years after that, I was teaching audio production. And and that's really what kind of accelerated me on a path into higher education as uh, as my real chosen career field was those experiences as a faculty member, you know, kind of at the ground level, interacting with students and both a in a really kind of interesting situation where that was include that was a it was a baccalaureate program but it was at a career focused uh for-profit education uh institution so it really was trying to balance this career training um focus but also with baccalaureate intentions and that's what made me uh, really interested and kind of a larger problem set that is higher education. So uh, my, my final question for you is, is, is how you benchmark success. Uh, because it, it, I can see it being complicated when you're thinking about career and workforce. Is it, you know, graduation rates, but then at that point, if there's a, you know, a student who gets a job midway through that's the perfect job for them, is that really considered a failure? Or is it employment versus if a person, you know, has employment, but if it's not the right employment, it's only short-term employment, is that success? So I can understand it's probably complicated, but how do you, how do you benchmark success for your institutions sure. and for the students there? Sure. I think one thing when when benchmarking uh, student success is to consider the intent of the institution and the intent of the student who enrolls in the institution. So, for example, it may be much more uh, important for a cosmetology school to be able to demonstrate that 75% of our students graduate, and of those 75% uh, of students who graduate, 95% 95% attain their license and are working as a cosmetologist in their chosen field. That would be important for a vocational school because one attends a vocational school with the explicit intent of attaining a credential that leads to their to the a job outcome. It's a lot harder at four-year colleges and universities, which may have artistry majors uh, and majors where freelancing is is really the entirety of the outcome, or, um, and, and in addition to that, in, in uh, four-year colleges and universities where the baccalaureate degree is merely the stepping stone to a master's or a doctorate or a professional uh, degree such as a JD or a, um, a uh, medical doctor uh, credential. So, and so it's hard to even set benchmarks when we don't know what the average outcome is. 
We've been speaking with Alan Gallegos, who's the Associate Director of Career and Workforce Education for the Maryland Higher Education Commission. Alan, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me. So before we take off, I just want to leave you with a few thoughts. Now, if anyone knows me, they know what an advocate for higher education I am. I spent much of my professional career in it, and I'm very open about the fact that without higher education, my path is not just improbable, it's impossible. But I also know that a four-year degree does not have to be and should not be a gating criteria for life fulfillment. I'm sensitive to the idea of pipelining children into life destinies that adults prescribe for them. The results of that have a tendency to be flawed and allow prejudices, stereotypes, racism, sexism, and classism to penetrate our expectations. But the reality is there are many occupations that some will shun that do help to create future pathways. My father-in-law is a great example. He was a construction worker in New York and a civil engineer with only a high school degree. His skill and work ethic allowed him to purchase a home, raise his family, send his kids to college with no debt, and live an honest and respectable life of contribution to his family and society. The fact that his path did not include a four-year college degree does not make it any less admirable. What we want for all children is what we want for our own flesh and blood. An opportunity to work in that space that gives you respect and security and fulfillment. Our future city must preserve that option with as much certainty as a framed diploma. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and my handle is at I am Wes Moore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive.